American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Alexander Hamilton's vision for the American economy incorporated structures like the First Bank of the United States. And it also incorporated the vision of a set of American investors tied to the federal government through federal debt. But it also incorporated one more thing that was much like the aspects of the British economy that Hamilton admired. And those first two were definitely part of the British economy as well. But this one uh, was, was even more controversial. By the late 1700s, Britain had begun to get more and more of its wealth from manufacturing. Now, manufacturing processes that I'm talking about began with the Industrious Revolution. They began with people turning fiber into cloth in their own homes in ways that really are not technologically revolutionary. Spinning wheels and hand looms and things like that. Eventually, they'll grow into the modern factory system. But when Hamilton was talking about starting manufacturing in the United States in the 1780s and 1790s, he's thinking of something that is at the midway point between the Industrious Revolution and a more full-scale factory system. He's talking about what, in fact, had happened in Britain over the previous two decades or so before 1790. Now, in the new factories that were starting to emerge in Britain, what was beginning to happen was that a few new types of machines were replacing hand labor or making it easier. Now, these machines were so revolutionary that Britain considered them to be state secrets and wanted to keep knowledge of how to build these machines away from the new republic that had just broken out of Britain's control. So let's talk for a second about how America stole cotton machinery and what that meant for the future. In the 1600s and early 1700s, most of the cotton that was grown and manufactured into cloth for trade probably came from India. And in India, cotton was grown by individual peasant farmers, spun and woven in very small operations in Indian villages. This is a small-scale process, and it created very fine cloth, cloth that came to Europe as a luxury good, and it was priced accordingly. So just like sugar in the early days of sugar, cotton was a commodity that you would display, but not a commodity that came very far down in the social hierarchy. Now, how does that start to change? It starts to change in the early 1700s. When European traders are able to buy more raw cotton from India and ship it with improvements in shipping technology, the process of shipping it is becoming cheaper, ship it to England. And in England, in the Industrious Revolution, individual households start to spin and weave cotton into cloth. And because the manufacturing is happening in Britain, the price for the consumer is dropping as well. In the mid-1700s, Britain is going through what you might call an epidemic of invention. More and more people are interested in inventing interesting mechanical contrivances, ranging from clocks to thermometers, like Wedgwood's pyrometer, 
to new machines that would harness water power to the process of spinning cotton fibers into thread. The most famous of these is the uh, Arkwright water frame, which was invented around 1770. Now this was so valuable to English manufacturers who could, using it, dramatically increase the cheapness of the thread that they made. It was so valuable that it was kept as essentially a state secret. An export of the mechanical drawings, the plans for the Arkwright frame, were forbid was forbidden. It was forbidden, but in 1788 or 89, an apprentice who had worked in a spinning mill, uh, a guy named Samuel Slater, decided he had memorized enough of the plans of the Arkwright machine to keep it all inside his head. And he moved to the United States, offered his services to a Rhode Island manufacturer. Together, they built a new kind of mill and began what ultimately would be the New England textile industry. Now, there's a lot more to say about the cotton textile industry, both in New England and in Old England. And we'll cover that uh, in, in future segments. But what you should know for now is, is that in the New England version, what starts off with these very small beginnings in industrial espionage in Rhode Island grows to be the most important industry in New England and the source of a remarkable set of economic transformations. But none of them would have been possible without cotton to actually spin into thread and then weave into cloth. And as long as most of the world's cotton was manufactured by Indian peasants, who could, by the way, only produce a few pounds every day of labor, as long as that was the case, then cotton cloth would still remain expensive and it would still be confined to a narrower rather than a larger market. It was clear to anybody who was involved in the cotton business that if you could get cheaper cotton and more of it, you could make more money. So already by the 1750s and 1760s, Caribbean plantations are starting to grow cotton. Cotton was being grown in French Saint-Domingue and British Barbados and in other places as well. And by the 1770s, also South Carolina planters figure out that they can grow cotton along the Carolina coast. But here's the problem from their perspective. So you can grow cotton, and then you have the slaves pick it, and then you have to process it. Cotton is full of seeds. And this, in 1780, was a main reason why it took Indian peasants so long to grow it because you had to pick out the seeds by hand. There's one more machine, and I suppose you could say this one was also stolen. One more machine that would make it possible for the world to change so dramatically. There would be other changes that had to happen, but let's talk about this machine first. And that machine, as you may very well have guessed, is the cotton gin. The cotton gin was supposedly invented by Eli Whitney, a Connecticut-born tutor uh, who was teaching the children of, the plant, of, a, of a planter on a Georgia plantation uh, in, in the early 1790s. And he was made aware of this bottleneck in the production of cotton, this limitation that made Georgia and South Carolina planters reluctant to grow too much of it. 
And that's the limitation I mentioned before, the limitation of processing it. Especially once you traveled inland, the kind of cotton that the soil would support was a so-called green seed cotton. And although that cotton grew abundantly, luxuriantly, you could grow hundreds of pounds of it in a single acre of land. To pick out the seeds from the cotton fiber itself was an incredibly laborious process. It took an individual worker a day to pick out a pound or two. So Whitney, well, this, is, this is a story we, we hear, invents a machine. And with this machine, this famous cotton gin, you feed cotton in, you turn a crank, and it pulls the fibers apart from the seed. Now what historians have learned is that in fact, for years before 1791, the planters on South Carolina and Georgia plantations had been pushing enslaved artisans to come up with more and more advanced machines that had already begun the process of separating the fiber from the seed. In fact, probably the machine that Whitney patented was essentially a copy of one he had seen a slave make. But whoever invented it, however it was stolen, what is clear is this. By breaking open the processing bottleneck, the cotton gin also broke open the constraints on cotton in the American South. And now planters would be able to grow on the vast interior that the United States had obtained from Native Americans and from the individual states. They'd be able to grow huge quantities of cotton, which would then feed the growing market for cotton in Europe, New England, and elsewhere. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank mm-hmm. you.